I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have Matt Whitcomb back to debrief the tour de ski, including highs and lows, overcoming setbacks, and managing a circulating head cold. We also discuss the cancellation of the LaRousse World Cup, COVID safety in a critical window before the Olympics, and the racing happening in Soldier Hollow during the 2022 U.S. Cross-Country Championships. Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by Concept2 and the Concept2 Ski Erg. Concept2 is the designer and manufacturer of the Ski Erg, a training tool for Nordic skiing and for general fitness. Located in north central Vermont, the Concept2 family rose in the summer and skis in the winter. The skier grew out of the time-tested design of the Concept2 rowing machine. As dedicated skiers, we know this much is true. It's not always easy to get out on snow in the winter, or out on roller skis for that matter, in the summer. The skier is a perfect dryland training option for skiers, or anybody looking to improve their fitness. The second generation skier allows for single stick and double poling. Take your skiing and upper body conditioning to the next level with a skier. You can find more information about skiergs and their PM5 performance monitors at concept2.com. Thank you for uh, making time for this. I, I would have completely understood if you wanted to take a couple days and uh, recharge after, uh, no. after the tour, but. No, not at all. It's, uh, I, can't, I can't promise a whole lot of clarity here, but uh, you know, we, woke up, we woke up this morning thinking we had a couple days of recovery coming up and then uh, you know, the next thing fell on our plate pretty much immediately with Le Roos being canceled. So uh, we're, we're just going full bore until the end. So let's just, let's just get into it. Okay. All right. Um, well, I wanted to start kind of just with, you know, highs and lows of the tour in terms of, um, thinking back on it as a whole, what are some of the moments that, that stand out to you in terms of the, yeah, just the, the good moments, the bad moments, um, behind the scenes moments, what are some of the things that stand out to you? Yeah. Well, um, we, we definitely had a bunch of each, um, Highs are often, I think for our team, the rebound that happens after some lows, you know, after a tough day, maybe when uh, uh, take like the 10, 15 K in Lancer High to when the snow is really tricky. Um, and, you know, we had some decent races out there, but it was a very lackluster type of day for us. Um, but to uh, get together in a team meeting that night, um, and to just feel the energy start to come up just as a result of getting together. You know, there's so few opportunities during this pandemic where we can actually be together, focused on one thing, sharing in some disappointment. And, and so those are some of the, the types of hidden highs that, you know, can kind of come out of nowhere. And if you're, if, if people are willing to bend a little bit and to change their emotions, change their, um, they're, you know, be willing to jump out of their struggles to leave their struggles. And I think you can stumble into some pretty cool territory on a tour. Um, of course, highs also include two wins. Uh, one of which uh, included a finish by Jesse that was one of the greatest all-time finishes in cross canoe ski racing, I think. Um, and I can't claim that as my own quote, but uh, certainly agree with it. I heard heard someone else say that from another national team. So that was really exciting uh, to, to go back and watch that finish over and over again uh, would be well worth anyone's time. And that's the, uh, the 10 K free, the 10 K free, the low 
tuck skate um, where she just grabs a great slingshot, but also um, just exhibits some incredible technique in her no pole hyper aerodynamic technique. So um, that was fun. Also in Lencer Hyde, you know, we had uh, Ben Ogden and Kevin Bolger both qualify in the top 10 and uh, to, <laughs> to, we talked about this in our meeting, but we think of those guys just as regular old guys on our team and uh, yeah, are impressed and happy for them. But when you see somebody else on someone else's team qualify fifth, it really jumps out as being just superhuman and uh, to, to recognize for a second, to slow down and recognize that those guys are now on our team. Um, people that can qualify 10 is a really special thing because yeah, they are just a couple of bums upstairs on our team, but they happen to be able to put together such an incredible pace over the course of a mile that uh, they can, they could be most of, most of the world. Um, Lowe's on that day would include uh, their tactics. <laughs> so, and I don't, you know, I don't mind saying that because they came out of their mouth first, but Ben felt like he did a little too much room up front. And Kevin said he did the one thing uh, he was trying not to do, which was to protect the, the inside of the corner. And instead everybody went by. Um, so little things like that, um, ups and downs throughout the tour. Uh, we've never had a tour without both. And we've had tours where we finished with as many as eight people and tours where we finished with one. And so we were pretty happy to have five on the start list on that last day. It's quite an accomplishment just to make it. So, yeah. Um, I think there was kind of some collective heartbreak in terms of watching Jesse's crash in the classic sprint. Um, and one thing I'm, I'm hoping to ask is, is, and you kind of spoke to this a little bit at the beginning, is just, um, you know, in, in thinking about it's not just a, it's not just a crash um, for Jesse, right? It affects her tour, it affects her season. And um, it's for someone like that, who's, in, who's invested so much and um, there's kind of a lot on the line and, um, just in terms of, you know, you know, it's, it's not the only time that, that something like this has happened and we're kind of approaching, um, you know, the Olympics pretty rapidly here and, and um, I'm sure there will be similar highs and lows there. And um, just in working with athletes over the years, in terms of kind of like um, just what you've learned in, in handling these kinds of setbacks in terms of you know, whether it's a need to kind of like recalibrate the goal um, or just to kind of shake off that bad race and, um, you know, let go of something that was outside your control um, or maybe it wasn't your control and it just didn't go right. Um, but just to kind of be able to show up in the right headspace and, and ready for the next day without that kind of hanging over your head. Yeah, well, something just occurred to me, you know, that didn't even jump out to me as a low in the tour. And here's why. And maybe it would have five years ago, but the way Jesse handled herself on um, easily the most significant low in the tour for her um, was so exquisitely done where she uh, was only moments later uh, talking face to face with Frida, um, responding um, professionally uh, as if they're friends and not trying to fix the problem by um, really getting uh, what you really feel off your chest. But instead, she's so skilled at moving on from defeat because she knows that the longer that she stays immersed in that, 
um, struggle, the less of a chance for success she'll have the next day. And it was such a quick uh, absorption of, <laughs> of the issue that, I mean, like I said, it didn't even jump out to me as something that held us back at all. Objectively, yeah, it was it was uh, very destructive. Um, but in terms of uh, pulling us down, it did not. Yeah, some some other, I guess, athletes that that stood out in that final stage um, that I wanted to get into would be, um, you know, watching Sophia Lockley in the climb yesterday was sort of like a throwback to Liz Steven at the peak of her career, just the. Mm-hmm kind of tempo that um, Sophia was able to maintain in some of those steep sections was just incredibly impressive. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just hoping you can kind of speak to Sophia and, and Novi in terms of, you know, that final hill climb, but also just, um, yeah, finishing the tour and um, just kind of coming coming into form in that in the final stages there. Yeah, well, what's cool about the, the final climb is that only 30% of it is actually a climb. And so to, to ski fast in that race uh, really requires um, simply just being in shape for a good skate race. Um, and I, I really think that we would have seen a great skate race out of both of them on any course that day. Uh, it just happens to be that they did, in fact, excel on the climb, too. But when they got to the climb after 7K, they were right there. And so uh, they had the skis. They had... They had uh, uh, dealt with the tactics of skiing down the Marcia Longa trail and not breaking equipment, not crashing themselves out. They had also managed to position themselves in a place uh, before they entered the Marcia Longa trail so that when the climb opened up, they would be able to hit the gas and go and not spend the next kilometer trying to go from 61 up to 51, but instead they could start mid pack and work from there. And that's how they found that success. Yeah, they killed it on the climb also. Uh, But so much of what went into the success that day happened on the two and a half K skate course um, up in Lago where the, where the stadium is at the whole other end of the course. And then the middle section from Lago down to uh, Alpa de Simris. So, uh, but in terms of watching them on the climb, we get to the point we're about 800 meters from the finish and you can see down this wall and you can see them just cresting over the top of the second main wall on the climb. And uh, it's amazing, even though they just look like ants down there, these people, you can tell who every single person is just because you've been watching the cadence and the technique. And maybe you're catching a little bit of color subconsciously, but everybody just looks like these little black stick figures down there. Um, and we caught out of the, <laughs> on the side of the tr- side of one trail, um, Sophia coming up and on the side of another trail, uh, Novi coming up. And it was just really, um, surprising to see how far up in the pack they were. Um, very exciting. It was such a cool way to end the tour, particularly since Jesse was kind of sliding downwards at that time. Uh, it was nice, you know, to, to really utilize the team because, uh, as we've said before, you know, that as cross country ski racers, we get our butts kicked a lot. It's a hard sport. You can miss it with a wax. You can miss it with your fitness in so many other ways, but with a team, you can always bet that somebody's going to have a good day. And, and those two came up big, big that day for us. Yeah. Um, also two athletes coming up from the super tour, um, Elena and Zach and both making their way 
uh, all the way to the finish line. What are your thoughts on, on there? So great to have them both. Uh, these are athletes that we've, uh, we've known for a long time and I can just plug into literally any team, any environment They're They're so easy. They're, um, gracious athletes. Uh, they're fun to have around. They really add to the environment. Um, and I think they make everybody a better ski racer. And, um, you know, we make a point of, uh, on this team we've in the past, uh, coaches mostly have had, had criticism that it's difficult for athletes to come over from the U S. Um, because no matter how welcoming we are, it's really hard for certain personalities to feel welcome. Um, uh, no matter how hard we try, it's, it's tough to say that we want you to feel home at home here. And it's a whole nother thing to actually feel at home. And so uh, it's just something that we work really hard on as coaches to facilitate, but also as a full team with the athletes included, we talk openly about the issue of making sure we realize that even though these athletes uh, know everyone on the team uh, and have gone to training camps and have been at the same races in the past, they're still entering a new environment. And uh, I'm really proud that uh, both Zach and Elena, you know, actively tried to plug in, but that everyone else is also so welcoming. That to me is a sign of a, a successful team and is a great way to perform. Um, they also skied really well. Um, I think Elena was largely disappointed with her results right up until the last day. Um, I haven't listened to any of her interviews uh, yet because I hadn't had a, haven't had a chance to uh, really go back and and pour through some of the stuff that was produced during the tour. But um, you know, I talked to her every day, and uh, she wasn't skiing. I don't think as well as she was when she was in the U.S. But we definitely saw some awesome life out of her yesterday when she was 36. Um, her boyfriend was out on the course, which is cool. Um, just to have. Uh, a few spots of American fans here and there make such a big difference for us, particularly during this, uh, this, this weird time we're in. Uh, so happy to see her finish the tour with uh, her head held a little high, not that uh, she ever got down, but uh, there's so much more that she can do. And I hope she has a chance to do it. Um, Zach had a little bit more success on the tour. You know, we haven't seen too many people come over and be able to swing and hit and, uh, land somewhere within striking distance of the top 30 and he did it twice. I think he had a 34th in the classic sprint and a 36th in the 10 K skate the day before. And those are no joke results. Those are um, not your kind of quote unquote tour results that uh, can happen after later in the tour because people are dropping out. There are, you know, still 80 people in the race that day. And uh, for him to just be seconds out of, uh, or, you know, tenths of seconds out of qualifying and uh, seconds out of getting out of the points in, in the 15K. That's so impressive. Um, such fun people to have on the tour. They're so hardworking, and uh, I know they're going to have success this year. It's tough to come over, though, uh, from the States after a racing tour of period one and in the U.S., get on a plane and try and acclimate and be ready to go. Uh, so the success that they have uh, is an is is an accomplishment. So, um, in terms of uh, managing sickness on the team, it seems like there's kind of a, a head cold that went around that kind of knocked uh, several athletes out. Um, whether they kind of 
withdrew from the tour a little earlier, uh, like Haley and, and Julia, um, or kind of stuck it out a little bit longer or were taken out a little later. Um, but I'm just kind of curious in terms of just um, like what is, you know, and, and it was a non-COVID illness. Um, sounds like pretty mild, but enough that you want to um, pay attention to it, especially at this point in the season. Um, and just, yeah, in terms of like what happens when, you know, somebody on the, on the team starts feeling a little bit sick um, to kind of, you know, obviously take care of that person, but at the same time kind of protect the other athletes um, from getting sick also. Like what are some of the kind of approaches that, that um, are taken at that point? Yeah, good question. Often uh, the, we try to make it so that, um, you know, the athletes have the autonomy whether or not they're going to start. And so in that way, um, they're, no one is trying to hide their, their health. They know that it's binary. They're, they're either feeling good or they're not. Um, and that they're going to have a chance to make up their own mind of, as to whether or not to race. And so I think we try and strive for just 100% transparency about athlete and staff health on the World Cup. It's really the fastest way to lose trust in somebody because we can all tell when somebody's hiding something, you know, uh, just as humans, we're, we're smart that way. So, um, and, how, and trusting your team goes a long way uh, to uh, creating an environment where we can perform. But so they're, they're pretty good about reaching out and say, hey, um, they'll sometimes reach out to me. Sometimes they'll just um, send me a quick text and say they're going to come by and uh, chat with a couple of us coaches. Um, and then they often just send a, t a chat to the whole team and say, Hey, I'm going to pull myself out of meals. Um, I'm still planning on racing today. I'm going to ride down with, uh, so-and-so to keep myself separated from the team. Um, we will move their roommate out into a single. If it's at all possible, it usually is possible to figure some of these things out, but you know, you, you've got a, a room that is maybe, uh, can be deemed toxic. And so you, you move the healthy athlete out and you don't put them in a room with someone else because they could be a vector, but just try and isolate things as best we can. Um, and our main weapon, I think is transparency, but the masks help too. <laughs> I, I do wonder though, uh, had we not been wearing masks, would this cold that seems to have started in Lillehammer, would it have just annihilated us uh, for two weeks and then been gone? Uh, but instead, we've just had this thing just sort of trickling through the through the team, like one or two people a week. Um, it's not so significant, but it's not a cold that really uh, you want to be racing with. Uh, typically, anyways, it's been somewhat short, but fairly intense. But, the, you know, the, the other thing, Rachel, is we we also first kind of prioritize uh, figuring out if it's COVID. So we'll um, we had somebody this morning that woke up with a uh, little bit of GI troubles um, and uh, they got a test today just to make sure that, you know, any, we just rule out that first and foremost. We also have our own uh, antigen, rapid antigen testing machine on the road that we can't use to fly or to gain entry into nations, but we can use it to just sort of uh, provide an extra layer, layer of security uh, with the team. So every other day on the tour, we are making sure everybody was tested and we'll test the full team tomorrow. And in terms of this year versus last year with some of the COVID stuff, um, you know, it's, it's just like second year of, of pandemic living on the World Cup. Um, and I'm, I'm curious 
if kind of managing that that stress because it is kind of just like a you know a chronic presence um some, or something that you have to think about and take into consideration in, in ways that we did not used to have to um and just how that's feeling this year compared to last year and um I, yeah from kind of a, a mental health perspective too you know just um it can be hard for athletes to be on the road for so long um, anyway, and then you kind of have some extra layers of um, complication there. Um, is it feeling different this year versus last year? I think it did. Um, it felt better uh, for a little bit uh, because we all were vaccinated and our whole team is also boosted. And so it was feeling good. And then, then Omicron comes along and um, shows that it's um, – our vaccines are not as impervious to this particular variant, but maybe um, we're we're safer from having serious illness. Um, there's there's a lot of trust in that on this team, but you know we feel a little bit less armored, I think, with this new variant. So I feel in some ways it again feels like last year where we are. Um, you know, I was just sitting around dinner just now with staff that I'm technically uh, well bubbled with, but we we're all uh, masking up between bites um, when we're talking, uh, you, it's not it's not perfect. You know, you have to take it off to eat, but it certainly isn't comfortable. But it is uh, clearly our biggest defense, I think, um, and probably ahead of the vaccines, even maybe, um, because as we saw last year, nobody got sick with all of this masking and isolation. So we're we're still trying to do that, and it is tough on mental health. And an athlete will wake up and not feel good. And, you know, the fact that they're not feeling good might, uh, have also included not racing well the day before. So it's sort of a double whammy. And then they're isolated in a room, um, not racing, you know, they're pulled away from teams away from the meals. Uh, and it just all compounds and can be, um, yeah, it can, it can get away from you. So we, we try and pay close attention to the people who are in isolation. I think it's, um, yeah, there's some serious stuff that could be missed there if we don't. In terms of just uh, heading towards the Olympics and, um, you know, I think there's some pretty uh, pretty restrictive policies in place or, or testing protocols and kind of a really rigorous um, set of protocols to follow leading into the Olympics. Um, is there any kind of heightened, um, I guess, uh, action plan in, in terms of COVID management or, or uh, just, you know, extra precautions that, um, people are taking in this kind of final month leading into the Olympics? Um, or is it kind of, you know, it's always the same kind of level of importance, um, throughout the season. We're, we're, I think we're definitely starting to, um, uh, be more and more cautious. Um, you know, we just lost our races in Les Rus. I don't think we are going to try and replace them with OPA cups or local races. I think we will try and have bubbled training camps where we can train with local national team athletes um, who are training in the area. Uh, but I think we will try and start this pre-Olympic bubble that we had planned for Lavinio um, starting January 17th. I think that has basically begun today. Um, and, you know, we don't know where our Olympic team is, but we know some of them are here. We know some of the staff is here and it's really the best that we can do. So um, we have, uh, we're doing our best with nutrition and that was a big part of our strategy. We have uh, the Reg, uh, Red Sox chef here with us 
uh, for a couple of weeks. And um, we had uh, uh, our longtime dietitian and chef, Megan Chikoski, before that from the USOPC. Um, in two weeks, we'll have another chef joining us for our camp in Lavinio when we go up to altitude. And so that's, that's one of those lines of defense that we're putting in place just to make sure the nutrition and fueling is, is high and we can try and stay healthy. In terms of that, uh, the cancellation in LaRousse, um, you know, uh, it seems like there could potentially be some silver linings there in terms of, you know, whether, as you're saying, kind of a longer um, block at altitude before the Olympics or more recovery for some of the athletes who race the full tour. Um, and there is still one weekend of World Cup racing before the Olympics in, in Planitza, um, which has a, a classic splint, sprint and a skiathlon, I believe. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are in terms of, um, just, are there some silver linings there and, and just, um, if you can say a little more about how, how the plan is kind of adapting given this cancellation. Yeah, we're, we're working pretty hard to figure out where this one week gap that has just opened up, um, ends up, uh, we've, we've looked into extending our lodging here, um, extending this, this chef Kata here uh, for another week. Um, does that work? Or do we go to Livigno to spend more time at altitude? Are there advantages there? Do we, do we split the difference? Spend an extra three days here and an extra two days in Livigno. Um, those are all, those are all things that are being considered. I definitely think there's a, uh, a silver lining with, uh, the opportunity not to travel to France. Um, or it's not that it's France. It's just that it's a, it's a big event. And so we can avoid that, minimize our chances. We're hearing uh, some pretty alarming statistics about the percentages of American citizens who could be infected over the next four weeks. And uh, we need to be the exception. We need to be in the, the that, that 30% that doesn't become infected because uh, anyone who becomes infected now really risks um, missing the Olympics. Uh, of course, you can test negative, but there are certain restrictions put in place by the Chinese government that will try and make the Olympics as safe as possible. And that could end up excluding some athletes who test positive too late. So our policy is, uh, our goal is to have, uh, you know, a team that has no positives uh, with regards to COVID testing. And um, we'll, just, we'll just do our best. We understand in China, there will be uh, COVID testing every day. And so we'll feel pretty safe once that bubble becomes established. But, you know, you have to, every time you move, you have to create your new bubble. So there's several days of, um, you know, kind of waiting and seeing and being particularly nervous about these tests because you never know what you pick up on the flight or in transit. Uh, but each day that goes by and everybody tests negative, uh, the more and more secure you feel in your bubble. Um, and is here... Where is, where is here right now? Yeah, so we're in Seyfeld, Austria at some apartments that we've stayed at in the past. Um, we've had good success here before championships. The, the, it's uh, one of the uh, nicest places we ever stay uh, with some of the nicest ski trails and one of the nicest hosts that we could possibly have. Uh, it's just very con convenient. We're, we're close to Munich. We're uh, close to, close to the, we're in the Alps. Uh, so, um, and there's 
new snow on the ground as of today. So lot, lots of trails are open. And then in Lavinia, we'll be in a, an environment that can uh, be quite cold this time of year and in the, in the weeks ahead when we plan to be there. But that's one of the acclimation strategies is to be in that environment that we're going to find in China because there is cold weather acclimation that, that uh, can be helpful. Um, last question on the, the LaRousse uh, cancellation is just, um, do you see any impact in terms of Olympic qualification, um, since it is kind of within that last, last weekend of um, opportunity, I think, to, to qualify? Yeah, I do. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the impact will be, but I know we have a lot of athletes here and at home that we're looking forward to um, having that be their last big swing. And uh, there won't be a replacement for that. We did hear that today. So that uh, component of Olympic selection is, uh, has been removed. So that's a, that's a shame. That's a, that's a bummer because there are, some, there are three races there that we would have loved to have used. And we don't have a solution. Um, last thing for today, I, I just wanted to um, ask about U.S. nationals in terms of uh, it's been it's been pretty exciting uh, covering those races. And, um, you know, even though it's the end of the tour to ski and I think all, all of us are uh, ready for a little break, it's 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 been some really exciting races there. Um, so if you just curious if you wanted to say anything about, uh, yeah, the first two first two days of racing in Soldier Hollow. Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, the live feed is incredible. Yeah. Um, the sprint was, I, I called in, I was talking to Chris Grover trail side as the race was happening because I was uh, running back and forth, getting people COVID tested and packing up the truck after the final climb yesterday. But um, I was, I was watching with our entire staff, the, the sprint races and, and wow, what a production. Uh, what an exciting race and the way that each of those races were won was, was fabulous. So uh, congrats to JC and Caitlin and everybody else that was on the podium. Uh, that's been great. looks like um, pretty successful day there yesterday also uh, sounded wild. I mean, just how cool is it that we have so many athletes at a national championship event, you know, over 400 athletes um, at an absolutely world-class venue that, uh, Luke Bodensteiner and his crew, uh, you know, Luke's my former boss. So um, huge shout out to him um, and what he is continuing to do there. That's, that's been in place for a long time and the improvements that he's making. So, um, you know, I asked him uh, what his snow, snow making budget was. He's like, and he said, uh, as long as I can still ski, there's no budget. I want to ski. <laughs> so <laughs> anybody in the Heber Valley uh, is in a good place right now with, uh, with Luke there. So, uh, it definitely seemed like people were racing hard yesterday. That was really exciting to see Scott Patterson, um, able to ski off the front and then David Norris and a few others almost got him down at the end. Uh, that, that's some, that's an exciting piece of racing, uh, to have Rosie Brennan deploying a, a new strategy this year, rather, rather than staying in Europe, um, all winter. And, uh, uh, and, and trying with that approach, she's decided to go home, spend time, um, with her mom in Utah and to train there. She's there with her club team now getting that sort of support and, and getting those vibes and how clear is it that she is still skiing very fast. So I think this is a strategy that's going to be, um, 
incredibly successful for her. But to also have uh, Frankie and Caitlin and a few others uh, not far behind, uh, so cool. So great things happening. Probably my favorite my, my favorite heat was um, a guy that I didn't know. I think it was uh, uh, last name Schwinghammer. Um, he, in one of the heats, was just aggressive and pushing the pace and had one of the most spectacular crashes that was caught perfectly on the, we watched it over and over and over again, but not just because the crash was excellent, but because his tactics before that were just so aggressive. It was really fun race to watch. So a big shout out to him. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fun from a a spectator perspective, especially, I think um, having some of those world cup athletes that maybe um, in a normal non-Olympic or non-championship season might not be racing at us nationals, but um, certainly makes for some, some great racing. And, uh, yeah, I think just highlights kind of the, the strength that we do have domestically. Um, but also, yeah, just pretty, pretty impressive to watch some of those guys, um, come home and yeah, throw down some really, really fast races. It is. And it's, it's good for them too. Uh, we hear this a lot, you know, it's like you spend too much time on the world cup. And if you're, if you're not Rosie or Jesse or, um, Julia or Ben or Gus, or, you know, you, um, some of these guys, even, even some of those names I listed spend a lot of their times getting their butts kicked on the world cup. And it's just nice to go home and feel like, um, you're not an underdog. And, uh, I think I, I chatted briefly with JC after his race and he said, just, it was just so much fun. And we got to see in the semifinals, what happens when a guy like JC, um, who can qualify with the best in the world gets boxed in and in trouble with just a few hundred meters to go. Um, he just exploded out of his cage and um, had to, had to find real estate on the outside of that left-hand turn. And, and he did. And that was super impressive. That was, uh, that was good to see that speed coming back. Cause I think it had started to fade as uh, uh, in maybe kind of near the end of period one. So uh, those guys are doing great work. Uh, back there and it's nice to nice to see everybody looking ready in an olympic year whether they're going to the games or the u23s or continuing on the the super tour or going to world juniors uh, i think we're in a good place a lot of a lot of great energy yeah. awesome well, well thank you so much for your time um and uh yeah hopefully over the next few weeks i guess there's a lot happening but hopefully some also opportunities to uh recharge and yeah get ready for the next big show. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I, uh, you know, don't really want to apologize because I'm just doing my best, but uh, hopefully uh, you give me a little slack with the uh, layer of fatigue that is that is uh, blanketing this conversation right now. <laughs> so it's uh, super fun to super fun to debrief uh, and, and to get the story out there. So thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Concept2 for their support of this podcast.